This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. What we've probably learned is we don't communicate science very well, especially in public health emergencies. A hard look at healthcare with policy analyst Paul Keckley, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. We have a special interview for you today. HFMA President and CEO Joe Pfeiffer is speaking with Paul Keckley, Managing Editor of The Keckley Report, about the economy and healthcare spending, public health in the pandemic, and the cost-effectiveness of health. You'll hear Joe mention Keckley's upcoming column in HFM Magazine, so if you're an HFMA member, you'll definitely be wanting to check that out in 2022. For now, here's Joe. Well, this will be a fun day on our podcast because I have one of my favorite people in healthcare as our guest today, and that's Paul Keckley. Paul is a healthcare entrepreneur and a policy analyst with a long history in our industry. In his past, he served as managing director of the Navigant Center for Healthcare Research and Policy Analysis, executive director of the Deloitte Center for Health Solutions. And a long time ago, he was in the executive administration at Vanderbilt University Medical Center among a variety of things that he's done. These days, he's the managing editor of the Keckley Report, which is a weekly newsletter covering healthcare industry trends and issues. And I'm pleased to say that in 2022, he'll be a contributing columnist in HFM Magazine, writing about the cost-effectiveness of health. And a couple of weeks ago, I was with Paul at a meeting at the Scottsdale Institute, and he kicked off the meeting with what I thought were some really poignant takes on where things are headed. And I thought, that might be fun to have him on the podcast. So Paul's a straight shooter. He doesn't lean left or right. But when he talks about things in Washington, D.C. and political things, he calls a spade a spade. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Joe. Good to be with you. So we had some fun in Scottsdale, as we always do. But I, I wanted to just talk a little bit about your opening remarks at that institute. And there's just three or four things that jumped out at me that I thought our listeners might like. And the first one is you talked about our economy and the debt and the fact that in the Trump and Biden years, we've added $12 trillion to our deficit. We talked a little bit about the $3.5 million package, which all the games that, <laughs> that have been used to get it to $1.5 trillion, and then what all this means for healthcare. So can you just tell us what you're thinking in terms of the economy and debt, what it means to healthcare? Of the federal spending, of what's spent by the federal government, 28% of that spending today is spent on health care. And that includes the federal government's portion of the Medicaid program, Medicare, federal employee health, and some other things. What's important is that that is growing exponentially. And it's simply a combination. It's a confluence of 10,000 a day aging into Medicare more obligations from government programs to provide health services. And now with COVID, 
and the concessions that have been made around things like temporarily delaying cuts to the hospital fund or this or that, it's exploded. So you begin to think in 22 and beyond, when we're looking back at the pandemic, knock on wood, and we're entering the political season, what's going to be the issue that resonates most with voters? And it turns out the economy will be that issue. Democrats will say, well, healthcare is a right. It's not a privilege. So you can't put a number on that. And Republicans will say, well, we can't afford to spend everything on health care if we need to think about educating our kids or roads or whatever. So that was the reason I put that out there. I think it is the issue in campaign 22 and beyond. And I think it's something that the healthcare industry needs to uh, develop a better response. We can't just simply say it is what it is. It just costs more because it does. I saw this, I don't know, a couple months ago, and it didn't seem to get much traction. And I read it in some newsletter the other day. But if no action is taken, and this is related to this debt and deficit issue or federal spending in general, but if no action is taken, that the sequester would come in, a 2% Medicare sequester and then 4% pay-as-you-go sequester, which is multi-billions of dollars. And I'm just surprised that's not getting more attention. And even in the stopgap where they dodged the bullet on the government shutdown, they did not set aside the timing of those that began January 1. That clock starts the first of the year. So, yeah, it was out of sight, out of mind. Right now, we've got a Band-Aid to keep government open until February 18th. But that Band-Aid did not address those two items. That's a budget reconciliation, 4%, a sequester, 2%. So, yeah, they kick in January 1. And just this whole thing of the federal debt and deficit, I just wonder how long can we kick this can down the road? At what point does this deficit and and the underlying debt become something that is just too burdensome for us to deal with? The other side of the debt coin is how fast does the economy grow to offset the debt? Mm -hmm. And that's going to be the discussion among the economists right now in the near term, because... Bank of America, J.P. Morgan have come in with these revisions to their 2021 analysis saying the budget's coming back strong, that GDP will be north of 6% for the year. So if the budget is dependent on a growing economy and that's sustainable into 22, then the answer is you can buy time through the campaign 22 election cycle. If the first and second quarter of next year, the GDP growth slows and inflation continues to spike, then you've got to address it immediately. That's when you begin a very aggressive. But it's never one thing. It's always things that relate to one another. So the economy's growth as an offset to growing deficits is akin to saying, If your income in your household increases, then maybe you can afford a little higher interest payment or you can afford that new car. Sure. But if that income in the house isn't growing or it slows down or you lose that second job, that note for that car didn't go away. That's the teetering that we're doing right now. 
you're not going to hear about it in the media, probably because we haven't. I'm just grateful that I know that there's some economists that are worried about this because it just doesn't seem to any of us that are just watching the news. It doesn't come up. And I, it just concerns me that it's really kicking the can down the road. So I agree. It is. Absolutely is. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears a little bit here. I, I, you made some commentary in the meeting about the pandemic politics. Well, as, as I said, you had multiple voices trying to clarify COVID-19 and then Delta and now Omicron. And the voices seem not to be in the same songbook. So NIH and CDC and FDA and the White House task force were issuing daily announcements that were inconsistent, not to mention the amount of noise from social media. Joe, this Wednesday, will be the official two-year anniversary of when WHO found the virus in Wuhan. What we've probably learned is we don't communicate science very well, especially in public health emergencies. And the government did a bad job. We fumbled our communication and now we're paying the cost for it. And unfortunately, I think it continues today because here we are with certain parts of the country, numbers are spiking. I know in Michigan, where I live, the hospitals are jam-packed full again, right. and it, it's scary. It's beyond red. It's a deeper shade of red, I think, or what they're calling it. But yet, the general public is like just going about business as normal. And I think a lot of that is just pandemic fatigue, but I think it has something to do with the communications of all right. this. Right. The health system people are banging on the table saying, you got to pay attention to this, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Well, and we're kind of complicit in this. It's the interesting data point. A third of the uh, healthcare workforce are unvaccinated. Right. So we resemble the entire population, which is nearing it's almost 80 percent the older you are. And then it gets down to the 50s for kind of middle aged people. But the third of the workforce has not been vaccinated, feeling strongly that it's an unnecessary requirement. And then there are these voices that are saying, well, it doesn't really matter because there's so much immunal protection out there from other sources or antibodies and this and that. So we don't have a consistent message out there. And the healthcare workforce is just as confused as the rest of the population. Boy, you know, at the beginning of this, I thought this was going to be a sociologist dream that someday that these sociologists would have a field day studying this. And I, <laughs> I think that's going to be the case, don't you? Yeah. Uh, just the way that we've handled this whole thing. Yeah. And I think this later wrinkle of employer mandates where the Missouri court jumped in and said, not so fast, my friend, and then 13 other states joined them. I think that's another wrinkle of this thing. How do you impose a public health intervention? What's the right lever to do that? And all we had prior was kind of a bully pulpit. And then we used fairly straightforward requirements in our public health programs or our school clinics, and they didn't get a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. But now all of these things are going to take on a new flavor because it's become partisan. So I don't think the public health apparatus in this country is prepared to deal in the public domain the way it now has to. And there's some sentiment growing that instead of this pandemic increasing the perceived need of investment in public health, that we might actually be taking a step backward as a society in our investment in public health, which I never would have thought of that a few months ago. 
Yeah, I've studied other countries versus ours. And, you know, the ratio of developed systems to ours is about a three to one difference in what's spent on public health and social services programs. So we underfunded it to start with. And then it's funded at state and local levels, even though the feds have a lot of say in how it's spent. It's so confusing to create a national public health program when you're dependent on local community health clinics, local federally qualified health clinics, a patchwork of faith-based organizations and you name it. So we should step back and kind of revisit how the public health apparatus is structured. It's interesting, one of my CFO jobs in the building connected to my building that my office was in was the county health department. And I was at that particular location for probably six or seven years. And you know what, I'll admit this publicly, I never knew what they did. I never knew what their role really was in healthcare. It just was, yeah. it was there, and uh, but it didn't concern me. And I just, I don't think that's changed much across the country. No, that's true. So I wanna to shift to one more thing that you said that I thought was really interesting. You made the statement that you think the acute care health sector is misreading the market. And I think it was along the lines of more and more investment by private equity, uh, venture capital, you know, things that keep care at home, whether it will or won't replace tertiary care to some extent, et cetera, et cetera. Could you expand on what you mean by that? Because I think our listeners probably should hear this. Well, I'm a hospital guy. That's where my heart is. That's where I started my career. And I'll probably always be that. But what I saw over the past few years is the hospital's because their operating margins for patient care activity were shrinking in the best of markets where that's less the case. If you're in other types of markets, it's not even possible not to see those disappear. But even in the best of circumstances, in order to stay competitive, they were doing more diversified activity, more investing with private equity and with their own venture funds and that really stepped up in 2015. And what I think has happened is the health systems justifiably say, I've got to make some money. I've got to access the capital market to compete with the likes of United or Walmart or Best Buy or whoever comes down the road, not just the guy across the street. To do that, I can't do it on patient care and reimbursement. I've got to do it through other means. Well, that exposes hospitals that are community-based or not-for-profit or faith-based organizations to criticism that you're using patient money that should be in the community for the purpose of the community for purposes other than that. And it's not necessarily a fair criticism, but it's an objective criticism. And it's hard then to match that with the executive compensation that we're now paying in the C-suites and if you're a practitioner, a doctor working for the hospital, or you're a frontline nurse, if you don't think that the corporatization of hospitals has kind of transformed them from community-focused organizations that are purpose-driven to diversified healthcare companies that operate like for-profit companies who may have some not-for-profit operations that involve patient care. And what I was talking about in that meeting is, for instance, when the American Hospital Association said that price transparency rule that started January 21 
is irrelevant because what people care about is out-of-pocket cost. That's tone deaf. Consumers care about prices. They care about out-of-pocket cost, and they care about the risk they bear for paying for their food versus paying a bill they get from a hospital or a doctor's office. So I think we have to be more responsive to where Joe Sixpack is on issues like price transparency or consolidation. Uh, The industry took the position that consolidation of hospitals has not added cost to the system. The data showed that hospital consolidation has resulted in lower operating costs in some instances, but that doesn't translate to lower prices for insurance premiums or hospital services. And you know this, it's because fewer and fewer people are paying those prices. So they keep going up to offset the people that don't pay them. So it was a bad response from the industry to say consolidation is really not having that effect. It is having that effect. We didn't do a good job of explaining why that's not the root cause. So I think we have to get back to asking the question, what's the H? When you see that H next to the road, what's it mean? And how do we create a policy environment that protects the purpose-driven role that hospitals play? And I think we got to get back to that or we're going to pay a price for it. I think the trust in hospitals that we've gained as a result of the pandemic will quickly dissipate. In my own commentary, I think the policy side is one thing and really important, and I don't disagree with a single thing that you said. But the thing I would add on to that is we need to be out in our communities and talking about how healthcare is financed, how healthcare economics work. Absolutely. Because it's, yes, it's confusing. And I raised that as a question in that meeting last week, and one of the CEOs kind of laughed it off saying, well, you know, my board doesn't even understand how, you know, healthcare is financed. And I said, well, that's not a good enough answer for me. You know, we have to be out there and it will be difficult in the beginning because we have a lot to make up for. We have a lot of uh, lack of communication and there's a lot of anger out there. But I I think you're right. I I think if we don't do these things, I think we're going to continue to get beat up. I think hospitals have a moral high ground that they have operated from for years. And they have bad actors, just like every sector has bad actors. Sure. But I think we've maintained the moral high ground. But what's happened, I think, we're seeing that erode. I think we're seeing it erode because we're beginning to look like the people that we say do not have a moral high ground. Right. So I think there's a lot of ways that we could address that and boards ought to have that discussion. Well, I'm a hospital guy, too, just like you. And I feel it's our responsibility to talk about these things with our members and encourage them to be out there. So thank you for having the courage to bring that up. Absolutely. Hey, exit question here. Uh, I made mention of the column that you have agreed to write for us starting in 2022. Can you talk a little bit about what you hope to say? I'll follow trends. That's kind of my way of thinking about the industry. And everything needs to come back to the cost effectiveness of everything we do in this industry. It is not a simple proposition to translate changes in how we operate clinically or changes in the way we allocate capital to bricks or clicks or whatever to the use of money and cost effectiveness. So what I will be doing is looking at an ongoing set of areas where we can address cost effectiveness in the context of good sound strategy. 
Well, I guarantee it'll be great because you're not afraid to speak truth. People, if they don't know you, they need to know that you're also a data hound and everything that you do is has got a backdrop of good, solid research data. As a data person myself, I just love that. I, I love people with opinions, but too often you see opinions stated without facts behind it and you don't do that. So thank you for, for doing that. And thank you for writing the column for us coming up and thanks for joining me today. It's always fun, Joe. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. If you want to know more about Paul Keckley's views on the industry, check out Part 4 of Healthcare 2030, The Future of Strategic Investment. Senior Editor Nick Hutt interviewed Keckley, as well as other industry leaders, to learn about the hospital's role in healthcare over the next decade. And as Joe mentioned, you can see Keckley's column in HFM starting in February, so definitely look for that. Next week, we'll have our last episode of the year with some very special guests, so be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear about in 2022, let us know. You can reach our team at podcast at hfma.org.